Uh, well, here's a question for you. Are you a practical atheist? Now, I don't mean an, an actual atheist where you deny that God is there, but a practical atheist is someone who believes in God but acts as if he's, he, he doesn't believe in God. I think if we're honest, there are times when all of us are practical atheists. When you're faced with a difficulty and instead of praying for God's help, you try to solve it on your own. That's practical atheism. When you're anxious and worried about how something will turn out, rather than trusting that God is in control, that is practical atheism. When you know what God's word says you should do, but you do what you want instead, that's practical atheism. When you say that Jesus is Lord, but you do what's easiest rather than what pleases him, when he commands you to take up your cross and follow him, but instead you hold on to your own life, that's practical atheism. If that's you, and I suggest it is, or for all of us, can I suggest we pay close attention to Paul in these chapters? Everything he does is because Jesus is his Lord. There's a consistency between what he believes and how he lives. Did you notice twice in these chapters he says that his conscience is clear? Once before the Sanhedrin in chapter 23, once in chapter 24 before Governor Felix. His conscience is clear. His actions and what he believes are consistent. From the day he was converted, he knew that he would suffer for the name of Jesus, chapter 9, verse 16. And ever since, all, uh, and that happened all the way through Asia and Europe as he preached the gospel. And despite God's warning that he would suffer prison and hardship, he determined that he would go to Jerusalem. He said, 2024, that he considered his life worth nothing that what was far more important was to complete the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That's denying yourself, isn't it? Taking up a cross. He considered his life worth nothing. In fact, in 21 verse 13, he said he was ready to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. Now, he is really taking seriously Jesus' words in Luke 9.23, and I think Luke wants us to think of these verses as we follow Paul through Jerusalem. If anyone, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Now that's what Paul is doing. There is no practical atheism in Paul's life. There's no gap between what he believes and what he lives. He's losing his life in obedience to Jesus, denying himself, taking up his cross. Uh, that's what he's doing in chapter 23 uh, as he stands to defend himself before the Sanhedrin. The same religious court Jesus was brought before 20 years earlier. It's the first of four trials over the next few chapters. This is some serious persecution. You might think that meant someone was definitely guilty. But one of Luke's objectives as he writes this history is to show Paul's innocence. 
This church planter through Asia and Europe was not a criminal or a rebel. He was innocent. He was only doing what God had commissioned him to do and then suffering for it. By whatever measure you want to use, according to Jewish law, he's innocent. According to Roman law, or even before God himself, he's innocent. That's how he begins his defence in verse 1. My brothers, I fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. It's an extraordinary claim, isn't it? He's hardly filled with remorse. That's something judges look for in sentencing people. Does the accused show remorse? Not Paul. He's convinced he's done nothing wrong. Now that just makes the chief priest angrier. He's sure he's guilty. He orders that Paul be struck. At which point Paul seems to change tactics. It's a fascinating little uh, interaction here, isn't it? He knows the controversial theological questions. He knows what buttons to push. Verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there's no resurrection, there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all, says Luke, to help us. It seems like his plan is simply to distract attention from himself. And, then, and it works, verse 9. There was a great uproar. Some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The whole thing just degenerates into farce, doesn't it? There's one side arguing with another while Paul gets rescued by the Romans. It's the same thing that happened in the temple in chapter 21. Now it's happening on the steps of the Roman barracks. But even though he is innocent, the persecution continues. And I think that's perhaps why Jesus appears to him again in verse 11, to give him courage, to confirm that even though he is being persecuted, he is exactly where God wants him, taking up his cross, denying himself. Because that's the temptation, isn't it, when life gets tough? We're tempted to think that we're not on God's path for us. We must think that there's something wrong, that he's punishing us, or that he wants us somewhere different, somewhere better, somewhere easier. This can't be right. This can't be God's will, we think. It's too difficult. But it wasn't like that for Paul. Things were difficult even though he followed Jesus. In fact, things were difficult because he followed Jesus. And that's what Jesus says to him in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul. <laughs> you know, I think we assume it was a dream or a vision or something, but that's not what it says. The Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Now, on the one hand, the negative way of interpreting that is, oh my goodness, I've already been through here in, in Jerusalem. I've got to go through the same thing again in Rome. That's the negative. But in, on the positive sense, 
you're going to make it out of Jerusalem. You're going to make it to Rome. You're just where I want you. Keep going. Keep trusting me. What a great encouragement. What a great strengthening for Paul. It's just as well because next day we find out about the persecution. Verse 12. The next morning the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they'd killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They come to the chief priests and the elders with a plan to ambush him and kill him. Paul's nephew hears about the plot. Uh, Verse 16, he tells the Roman commander who swears the boy to secrecy very wisely. Verse 22, and then uh, under the cover of night, he rushes Paul out of Jerusalem under armed guard uh, down to the coast to Caesarea where the Roman governor Felix lived. Uh, and so this first plot failed and those 40 men, well, they're still waiting for a feed. But I think, uh, the plot fails for now, but the enemies don't give up. Governor Felix summons uh, his persecutors, uh, his uh, accusers, down to Caesarea. They arrive well prepared. Verse 1, chapter 24, they bring their best lawyer, Tertullus. It's a Roman name. There's a Greek variant, uh, Tertius. He was probably Jewish, maybe educated under Rome. Uh, We've had the Jewish trial. Now we have the first of the Roman trials. And uh, his Tertullus' speech is polished and professional. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. (laughs) He's the very picture of reason and calm. Just agree with us and this will all be over before you know it. There's no real evidence, though, is there? It's just a lot of hot air. We have found that this is the case. So in verse 10, Paul stands up to make his defence in, in, I think, complete contrast uh, to Tertullus. He begins by acknowledging how glad he is that Felix is judging. He's confident that he will receive justice. Verse 10, I know that for a number of years you've been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defence. It's clear and concise. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they're now making. In other words, they've got nothing. Although they've got one thing right. Verse 14, I am a Christian. I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. There's that same theme again. He's innocent before God. And he works hard to be innocent before God because he believes there will be a resurrection and a judgment. Uh, He continues, he's innocent according to the Jewish law, ceremonially clean in the temple. 
And then verse 19, he introduces another piece of important information. His actual accusers are not here, the Jews from Asia. It doesn't say much for the Jews' case. And so Felix, because there's no further evidence to be presented, he adjourns the case. The Jews go home. Paul is placed under house arrest uh, as much for his own safety as to stop him escaping. But it's not the end of today's story because there is something about Paul and his words that interests Felix or perhaps his wife. It's an intriguing little conclusion to this part of the story. Uh, Have a look at verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. He's the judge who's still weighing the evidence, but this time in a a private sort of setting, and he's considering the claims about Jesus, about eternal life, about forgiveness. But look at the sticking point where Paul's message gets too difficult to accept. Verse 25. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, well, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. You see, the message of Jesus is two-sided. On the one hand, he's saviour. He's a rescuer from sin and death and punishment. But at the same time, he's also Lord. He's the one who demands allegiance, who demands righteous living and repentance, the one who's coming to judge. There are plenty of people who will accept Jesus as saviour, but when it comes to accepting him as Lord, oh, I'm not so sure about that. They like one side of the message without liking the other side. Because accepting the Lord bit, it means accepting change. Changing behaviour, handing over control, recognising that your actions now have consequences later, that there's judgement coming. Now to do that, it's just practical atheism again. It's trusting Jesus for your salvation, but not trusting him enough as Lord. It's not trusting him enough to take up your cross and deny yourself and follow him. It was a message Felix and Drusilla desperately needed to hear. Self-control and righteous living were not things they were known for. The Roman historian Tacitus described Felix as exercising the power of a king with the mind of a slave. It's a pretty dangerous combination really, isn't it? (laughs) To have the power but without the ability to use that power. Yet, unsurprisingly, it was a message Felix and Drusilla were not that interested in. And in the end, they're not willing to take up their cross and follow Jesus. They're not willing to submit to him as Lord. So what about you? Saviour and Lord, or just Saviour? Uh, Elizabeth Elliot, 
is best known as the widow of Jim Elliott, uh, who was murdered in 1956 by the headhunters of the Alka tribe uh, shortly after he'd landed his seaplane on a river in the jungle of Ecuador. Uh, he and his four colleagues had travelled there in obedience to Jesus' command to take up their cross, deny themselves and follow Jesus. And they lost their life. And they found it again. On that first trip, Elizabeth was sick and she couldn't make it. When she found out the tragic news, it didn't scare her off though. Within a few months of her husband's death, she too had denied herself, taken up a cross and followed Jesus, followed him to that same stretch of water, to that same tribe who'd killed her husband, to continue his church planning work. And over time she saw many of that tribe saved. How could she do that? She says it was by returning to the foot of the cross that she was able to cope and where she found her greatest comfort and strength. It was by understanding what Jesus had done for her that she was able to work out the practical consequences of that, what that meant for her life now. Here's what she says. When I have the opportunity to speak to prospective missionaries, I want to emphasise an encounter with the cross. I take them first to the foot of the cross and ask them if they understand what the cross is all about and what it means for our daily life. If Jesus told us that we must take up our cross daily and follow him, in what tiny little ways might we experience this? What about you? Uh, it's unlikely many of us will face the sort of persecution Paul faced or the sort of danger that Elizabeth Elliot's husband Jim was under, a risk to our life, but we're still called to be prepared to offer up our life, to lose our life, Not, most naturally though, most normally, I think we're going to be called to give up our life in the everyday decisions of our normal, boring lives. Nothing personal, but for most of us, our lives are pretty boring. Uh, Ellen Vaughan, Elizabeth Elliot's biographer, writes about her on this subject of taking up your cross. And she says, Elliot sees in the younger generation an aversion not so much to the grand cause of martyrdom, but an aversion to the mundane discipline of yielding to Christ's lordship in the small things. The great question is how you respond to the tiny little things which are not dramatic and not heroic. But those are the ways the cross is most often going to be presented to us. So what about you? How do you respond to the tiny little things? The choices to be generous or selfish, to be patient or cranky, to be gentle or sharp, to be God-glorifying or self-glorifying, the choice to be first or to be last. 
The choice to endure or to give in? Is there a consistency in your life between what you believe and what you live? Or are you a practical atheist? I was reading an article on good questions to ask when you're interviewing job applicants. And one of the questions was, what would your best friend say you were like? How would they describe you? So when it comes to taking up your cross and following Jesus, when it comes to self-control and righteousness, what would your best friend say about you? Would they notice anything different between your friend and you? Anything different in your language, in your impatience, in your attitude to your parents or your boss or your annoying neighbour? Any difference in how you spend your money? You see, every day we have countless small decisions to make, choices to deny ourselves to follow Christ or to follow ourselves and to deny Christ. How do we do it? Well, I think we can learn from Elizabeth Elliot. It's got to begin with seeing Jesus. We can't follow him if we're not seeing him, if we're not appreciating his work, if we're not singing songs about the cross, if we're not meditating on it, if we're not meditating on his love and his sacrifice for us. If we're not doing that, then our our choices are simply legalism. We need to take up our cross and follow Jesus from a motivation of gratitude and love. Let's listen and follow the words of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Paul, Uh, but he too was fallible and human and sinful. We thank you most of all for the example of the Lord Jesus, uh, who obediently and in love went to the cross, denying himself, uh, who became nothing for us. We rejoice in that. We, we love him and we want to honour and serve him and follow him. We want to lose our life for his sake so that he might be honoured. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.